You're now listening to episode 73 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Tom's Costelli here today with Aaron Howell, a client of ours who made the leap from a full-time pharmacist to active real estate investor and real estate professional. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how Aaron got started in real estate, when he knew it was time to go part-time as a pharmacist in order to pursue active real estate investing, his advice for those looking to do the same, what tax strategies he uses in his business, and more. Aaron, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little insight into your background? Yeah, my name is Aaron Howell. I'm, a, um, I guess, a pharmacist uh, by profession and education. I've been a pharmacist for about 19 years and change now. Probably about eight or nine years ago, I got started in uh, real estate investing and um, went kind of part-time in pharmacy about a year, year and a half ago, and um, got my realtor license back uh, three or four months ago. So um, it's kind of a little bit of the background of where I'm at now. Nice. Nice. So what, uh, out of all the different investment paths that you could have went down, what got you into real estate? Um, you know, initially it was just completely by accident. Um, I bought a townhouse in uh, 2006 and, um, kind of outgrew it. 2009 rolls around. I moved uh, a little bit outside of, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia to a smaller town, um, Crozet, Virginia. And uh, I moved into a single family home, but bigger than I was used to. And, uh, just, I, you know, I couldn't sell my townhouse. Uh, we had it on the market for about a year and, uh, the price kept dropping, dropping, dropping. And eventually we just decided, uh, the realtor and I just decided to put it on the market as a rental. And uh, within a month or so, we got a tenant. I think that's at that point when the light bulb kind of clicked for me. Um, I was like, hey, you know, I can outsource my debt, you know, and reap all the benefits tax wise, um, which was at, at that time, it was a kind of a, a saving, you know, like a great, uh, great situation because I was making two mortgages for a little over a year. It's slightly painful. So it sounds like you kind of got into it by accident. And then at what point did you decide, hey, look, I'm going to take this, you know, the bull by the horns here and start accumulating more properties. And when you did decide to do that, what did you start acquiring? Um, you know, in 2011, uh, my mom and I, um, I had made a trip to Las Vegas uh, to climb uh, Mount Whitney. I kind of flew into Vegas, uh, drove through Death Valley and up through the kind of the, uh, the edge of California up to like Bishop Lone Pine area. And she had mentioned uh, getting some like real estate flyers, um, you know, kind of like the little free little giveaways. You can pick up at gas stations and McDonald's and stuff like that. And I kind of just blew it off. I was like, yeah, you know, nah. and then a month or so later, she was like, Hey, why don't we just go to Vegas and take a look at some properties? I've been emailing a realtor out there and the market's really depressed. So we did that. Um, I eventually, uh, with my mom, um, bought a single family home out there pretty much class A. It was in a gated neighborhood. Um, we bought it about a third of the price it initially had sold for. I went back about six months later and uh, bought a second um, property there in Vegas. Again, you know, kind of class A neighborhood. The building was less than 10 years old. You know, both of those long-term, um, you know, the life that we owned them uh, were great investments. Um, you know, very low maintenance 
tenants, low maintenance properties. Uh, we made a, a nice little return when we sold those in 26, 2017. So from then on, you know, that was 2011, 2012, 2014, I bought a duplex. 2015, I bought two single family properties. 2016, I bought another duplex. And then um, things really at work. I had worked uh, for a company, um, and you know, up in you know 2008, uh, when is when I started. Up until like late 2016, it was a great place to work. You know, I had plenty of help. I was able to do what I needed to do. You know, just a great place. And then um, late 2016, you can kind of tell there was a change, kind of in the tone um, of our conference calls, the culture of the you know the, the healthcare uh, you know division and the company was changing, and I kind of. Had a, had a sense there was some writing on the wall there. You know, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew something was changing. So um, early 2017, um, kind of really got in gear. I redid um, some of my financing and then just had access to a lot more capital at that point. And that year we ended up buying, I think, uh, maybe 10 more units. I bought a quad and then three duplexes. And uh, we sold the two properties in Vegas, and I 1031 one of those into uh, six units in Cleveland. And then it kind of at that point, um, you know, it was kind of almost, I, you know, I kind of had, had a goal uh, of getting 20 units, and we were almost there. And then in May of that, uh, the next year in 2018, we got six units kind of through a partnership. And so that kind of pushed me over the 20 unit mark and uh, things happened at work. And I got a phone call from a, another pharmacy in town and he was looking kind of head to hunting. And I was like, you know what? It's time to get out of here. And uh, so I made the move to part-time, which was great. I had five or six keys on my key ring that I was able to get rid of. Like currently I have one key on my key ring, which is kind of cool. So my last day, I, I kind of walked out of there, kind of like the Shawshank Redemption, you know, like Andy Dufresne getting out of prison, you know, crawling through the sewer pipes. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm walking out of there like freedom, you know, so it was a good experience. Awesome. Awesome. So before we jump into the financial freedom aspect of things and taking that leap, just want to go back to that 1031 exchange on that property, which you ended up acquiring a six unit. What was behind your decision to do a 1031 exchange? Um, you know, I, I sort of, um, being the, the cheapskate I am, um, I didn't want to uh, pay taxes right away. Um, I worked hard, you know, I felt that gain, uh, you know, I would just pass it on down the road a little bit. Um, and then, you know, nice little gain on the property. So, you know, I was able to kind of put down payments on three duplexes and uh, have a little bit of money left over that I just kind of pocketed. And I got, you know, I got taxed on that. But grand scheme of things, uh, those three duplexes are, are, you know, doing great today. Awesome. Awesome. We always love to uh, defer or uh, reduce taxes wherever possible, whenever possible. And as long as it's legal and 1031 exchanges are one of those tools that we as real estate investors have in our tool belt to defer that. So glad to hear that you took advantage. So moving towards the decision to leave the position, were there any financial indicators, you don't have to give any specific numbers, of course, but that led you to believe, hey, look, I'm ready now to make the switch from a full-time position where uh, you know, I have a steady paycheck and I know that's where a bulk of my income is going to come from to a part-time position. And then you know, at what point did you, did you feel financially you were ready to make that decision? Um, you know, when I made the move, um, it was kind of scary on I mean, honestly, there's some trepidation there. Um, you know, you go from a full-time uh, situation. I had like 23, 24 days of PTO per year. I could basically take a, a week's va- a paid vacation every month of the year. You know, I, we had a schedule set up where if you work the weekend, you had like three days off during the week and then you had the next weekend off. So I could strategically use the two days in the middle of the week and, 
and basically have seven or eight days off in a row, like every, you know, every month if I wanted. But, you know, I, I knew probably about $200 a door um, is what I was, you know, kind of cash flow. And so you, you multiply that by 20 or, you know, if it was $300 a door, um, you multiply that by 20. So any, somewhere between four and $6,000 a month, um, I knew I could do a part-time safely. And, you know, again, you know, it was scary, but, um, you know, after it happened, I was kind of like, Oh, you know, what was the big deal? You know, why, why did I wait so long? But the, you know, where I work now, I work three days a week, generally on average. Um, if I want to work four days a week, I can go in extra. Nobody says anything. If I get tired, you know, halfway through the shift on the extra day, I could just say, you know what, I'm going home now. So, um, you know, you know I've done that. I went, I went in one day recently at like eight o'clock and by 12 o'clock, I was like thinking like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go home now, uh, which is kind of cool. But, uh, you know, that's a neat little aspect of the job. But generally, I'm, you know, three days a week. And if I need to mark certain days off, you know, a couple months down the road, I can just say, hey, I'm not available these days. I can go on this little app uh, through our scheduling system and just block those days out and just say, hey, I'm not available, which normally, you know, I, I couldn't do. The full-time pharmacist there uh, where I work, they can't do that. It seems to give you a lot of flexibility. And I, I know there's kind of two things to, to dissect here. The first one is I, I I would imagine that when you went part-time, and I know I'd have this issue if I were to go part-time right now, is what do you do with all that time? There's a big void. You're used to doing certain things. You used to have certain routines. Because the, the first question I have is, what do you do now to fill that void? Is it just real estate or other aspects of your life you're focusing on? Um, you know, I do stay busy kind of with like managing, um, the portfolio, you know, I'm, I'll take and, um, you know, I'm handling, um, you know, two properties through two different partnerships and then my own portfolio. And then here, you know, recently, um, you know, in June, I got my real estate license. So, um, here in the last like six weeks or so, I've been pretty busy helping a couple buyers get into new homes. I actually had a closing this morning on a property. That's awesome. So just to kind of recap, it was, so you started in 20, I think you said it was 2011. You had that property that you kind of fell into, like you, you rented out because you didn't want to carry the two mortgages anymore. And then 2012, you started picking up a few properties in Vegas. So between 2012 and I think you said 2017, that's how long it took you that five years working part-time on the real estate is how long it took you to reach that point of where you can make that jump. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, officially got over that 20 unit market in May of 2018. And then I, you know, I left the job, um, the full-time job in June of 2018. And it was kind of funny, you know, we had a, um, we have a chalkboard in our kitchen with lead plan of like what we're doing on each night. You know, if I have something going on, um, you know, we'll write it on the counter. If my wife has something going on and then she'll put like meals that she's planning on cooking or I'm planning on cooking on the board. And so for a couple of years, we'd had the number 20 circled down in the corner. And it's, it's kind of funny how, uh, you know, May of 2018, we got that, you know, we, we went from 16 to 22 units. And then like a week or two later, you know, I get a phone call from a pharmacy manager to another pharmacy looking for another pharmacist. And I, I'd known the guy for years. And like, he called up just kind of just starting a conversation to say, Hey, you know, we have these part-time positions open. Are you interested? So now that you're more on the active side, you're doing a little business as an agent uh, what does the future hold for you on the investment side of things? Um, investment wise, I'm probably going to keep syndicating. We finished our first syndication um, in January of this year, a smaller property outside of Pittsburgh. You know, it was a good experience for me. Um, I think at this point, I'd probably go a little bit bigger next time. You know, obviously, um, I think the effort that you would take to close on a six unit or a 26 unit is pretty much the same. Only difference is the dollar amount needed to close. 
and just some bigger moving pieces. But, you know, the effort pretty much is going to be the same, you know, depending on what size, it's going to be pretty much the same. What, what are some metrics that you use to measure the performance of the investments you have? Um, I, uh, I use a, um, program, um, do a, a course I took, uh, it's called a syndicated deal analyzer. And that lets me put some of the parameters in for the, the property. And within about 10 minutes or so, just get an idea kind of of what price I would like to buy at, or, you know, if the price that's being, you know, offered is a good price to purchase at, but it kind of lets you, you know, kind of tweak some of the numbers and kind of get an idea of returns down the, in the future and things like that. But it takes probably 10 minutes, you know, with some information from the broker. Nice. Nice. So it's, it's relatively easy to analyze and get the numbers, get a grasp on those. Yeah. So what would be your advice for someone who's looking to make the switch from a full-time W position and, you know, either going part-time in their W2 or maybe even going full-time as an active investor? What would you have to say to someone who's looking to do that? I probably the best advice I probably would give someone is just uh, do it about six months after you really could. You know, if, if you think you can do it today, wait six months. If you still can do it six months from now, you know, then it's probably a pretty good idea. You know, I, like I said, it was scary. Um, sometimes in real estate, you get a curveball, you know, like a property manager uh, just doesn't work out and you have to switch over or, um, you know, you have to do a renovation. So cash flow is a little strapped for a month or three. Um, you know, I think if you think you can do it today and then six months from now, you're still in the same situation. Maybe it's a good idea to go part-time or a full-time professional in that aspect. Got it. Got it. So that, that makes a lot of sense because you wouldn't want to just, as soon as you see that cash flow number, that first you know, yeah. first month or whatever, you're like, yeah, I'm here. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find out, you know, you leave your job or go part-time and all of a sudden you find out, hey, wait a second, you know, in months two through whatever, uh, it's just wasn't the case and you're not cash flowing the way that you thought you would. So you just need to, you make sure it's solid. It makes a lot of sense. It's great advice. Yeah. Um, moving to the tax side of things, we do have to ask some tax questions, of course. You mentioned a 1031 exchange before. What are some other strategies that you're currently using to, to help you on the, uh, with the real estate? Um, well, this year with me getting my, uh, my real estate license, um, I'll be able to kind of claim my real estate professional status nice. um, this year on my taxes, which is going to be a nice little advantage versus, you know, what I was doing in years previous. And, you know, I'm, I have a property manager. Um, I'm not as uh, hands-on as like most people would be on the properties I have, you know, I'm letting the manager take care of things. So I need to be materially participating in somewhat of a, a real estate aspect. I mean, probably before I would may have qualified hours wise uh, and stuff I was doing for real estate, but the active participation kind of, you know, is the key. That's where the real estate uh, license comes in. Are you combining the real estate professional cost segregation? Yes. Yes. Um, working on a um, cost seg this year for the property we purchased in January. So that should be a nice little, uh, nice little perk too. Other aspects of tax savings, I can't think of anything really off the top of my head. Um, but uh, looking forward, you know, to new ideas all the time. Absolutely. For most investors out there who can achieve the real estate professional status, you combine that with cost segregation. That's really the pinnacle tax strategy for almost anybody. And we've been, you know, scouring the tax code for a long time. And it's really hard to find. Uh, really a strategy much better than that. So the fact that you achieve that is like the top of the mountain peak for tax deductions, if you will. 
on the technology front of your business, we ask every guest this question, what is your favorite piece of technology or piece of software that you're currently using in your business? Um, that syndicated deal analyzer is pretty sweet. I mean, that can take, you know, I'll get a broker who emails me something and I can take and plug numbers in and uh, within, you know, 10 minutes or so, I'm going to say, eh, you know, that's a little ambitious on the price there. Or I got one here recently and I was kind of like, wow, that's pretty good price for the pro forma they sent. Uh, you know, what's the catch? I'm not used to getting one that's like, you know, right on the money price wise. So it was kind of cool to see. You know, another another piece too is uh, we have a piece of software inside our realtor platform locally called Transaction Desk. And it's kind of like DocuSign. I love that thing. I got, I, when I first got started, I was like, Hey, I need somebody to train me on the transaction desk, you know, but I basically watched a couple of, uh, you know, webinar videos from the company who manufactures it or puts it out software. And I watched a couple of YouTube videos and through trial and error, I've gotten moderately decent at it. So it saves a lot of time and uh, trouble of running paperwork back and forth. You can just email it and have the person sign virtually. And then it comes back to you and you have the, you know, certificate and the document itself. Absolutely. We just had another guest on very recently who just did the same thing that they also love the the electronic signature apps and or softwares rather. And we use the same things. We use uh, right signature a little bit. I think it's pretty much a competitor of DocuSign, the same thing. So we love the ability to be able to send it out and not have to deal with paperwork, not have to deal with stamps and mailings and all that stuff. So powerful stuff. Uh, what would be, you know, if, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or what you have going on in the investment side, uh, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? You can always email me. Uh, my email is ahowl, which is H-O-W-E-L-L, the number seven at hotmail.com. So A, the letter howl, H-O-W-E-L-L, the number seven at hotmail.com. Also have a website, uh, blackwickcapital.com. So color black, L-I-C-K, capital.com. Be a two best ways to reach me. I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on social media. So LinkedIn, um, Facebook, I'm on bigger pockets also, but any of those would be, um, ways to reach out. Nice. Nice. So we'll go ahead and we'll drop that information into the show notes for our listeners. If you want to contact Aaron, you can go ahead and do so. Uh, and everyone, thank you for taking the time for coming on the show today. Before we part ways, is there any final words, anything you have in the pipeline you want to discuss? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I'm kind of looking for the next, uh, real estate deal, uh, to syndicate, you know, kind of a, looking at this point to acquire some more investors, you know, looking at deals too. Um, there's a lot of competition these days in the market. So, uh, you know, kind of finding that next best thing is kind of tough, but my best advice would be to go out there and just get, you know, take some action. Um, you can read about stuff, you can, you know, listen to podcasts, but you've got to put forth a little bit of that effort and action to kind of get things done each day. So best advice I could give. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again. I look forward to putting this one out. All right. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the debrief segment of today's podcast with Aaron Howell on how he went from full-time pharmacist to active investor and real estate professional. So just want to apologize. I just realized I did record that podcast without the use of my Yeti microphone. So I did double check the sound quality. It is it is not that bad, but we will be back next week with the full sound quality. If it did bother anybody, I do sincerely apologize. I just want to give a breakdown of my thoughts on Aaron's situation. And uh, you know, I work with a lot of clients here at the Real Estate CPA, and many people's goals are to use real estate as a tool to get out of a full-time job 
and achieve financial freedom. And sometimes it seems like it's going to take a little bit longer than, than some people expect. You, know, you come fresh off the rich dad, poor dad books and think you're going to acquire uh, one rental property and be a financial freedom. Not quite that easy, but at the same time, and not that difficult either. As you saw with Aaron's situation, he started off getting into real estate a little accidentally, but then really took some focus on it in 2012. And it took him from 2012, acquiring a few single family duplexes uh, and moving up along that rung to acquiring 20 units in 2018 when he knew he was ready to make the leap from a full-time pharmacist to a more active investor and go part-time in the pharmacy role. So it is definitely very achievable. Just have to realize you do have to put the work in. It's going to be a grind and you're going to have to put the work in over a period of time. So I don't want people to think that achieving financial freedom through real estate is going to be a one and done event. You're going to have to put in the work consistently every week grind it out. You're going to have to search for properties, build relationships with brokers, obtain financing. You might have to get some coaching in there somewhere in order to help you get to the point where you will achieve that financial freedom. But like I said, it is very doable. Also want to point out in something uh, in Aaron's situation that he is a real estate professional. So he did take that part-time role as a pharmacist and was able to then achieve the real estate professional status which is pretty much one of the most coveted tax statuses out there for any type of investor, especially real estate investors, because it allows you to take those losses from your real estate and use it against your ordinary income. And it's something that's generally not possible when you have a full-time job, but if you're able to go into a part-time position or your spouse works part-time or not at all, and they're able to spend the time required to get that real estate professional status, it can be quite powerful. Something I did also want to point out is that for Aaron, he's a client of ours, so he was able to achieve the real estate professional status by getting his real estate license in order to get over that hump and make sure he had that 750 hourly requirement and more than half his total working time. So just wanted to let you know that is a valid path and you see it in action here with Aaron. He was able to use cost segregation studies and will be able to continue to do so into years into the future to be able to offset his ordinary income from his part-time uh, W-2 job. So just wanted to sum that up there. Uh, we will move into our Q&A segment of today's podcast. And we have a question from Joseph. And Joseph asks, are meal costs incurred while traveling to and from my rental properties fully deductible? And the answer to that question, like most things in tax, is it depends. So any meals that you incur within your tax home, which is generally going to be a 40-mile uh, radius of the city or the general geographic area in which you do business, are not tax deductible if you eat alone. The only way those will be tax deductible is if you eat with another business associate. So it could be a broker, a partner, an attorney, banker. If you're paying for that meal, uh, you will be able to deduct 50% of the cost of that meal. Now, to be able to substantiate that expense, you will need to keep the receipt uh, and you will want to write on that receipt the date, if it's not already there, who you had that meal with and the purpose of that meal. Uh, we always recommend if uh, an app called Expensify, Expensify will allow you to take a quick picture of that receipt, store it digitally so that you don't have to worry about keeping track of it. And you can always know that you're going to be able to maximize reductions because you are not missing anything. But that said, if you are outside of your tax home, which is going to be outside of the 40 mile radius, so let's just say you live in Atlanta and uh, you have to travel to Nashville, Tennessee to check on a rental property and you have to drive all the way there. 
Well, you will in that case because you are outside of your tax home. And again, this has to be for, if I didn't say it before, it has to be for a business purpose. So you're going to Nashville to check on a rental property you own in Nashville or for another business reason. Then you can eat alone and you'll be able to deduct 50% of the meal while you're alone. So those are the two cases. And to sum this up, if you're within your tax home, which is generally going to be a 40 mile radius in which the, in the geographic area in which you do business, you can only deduct the meals if you eat a meal with a business associate. And it has to be at least, um, excuse me, and it's going to, you're only be able to deduct 50% of that meal. Or you can, if you're traveling outside your tax home for a business purpose, you'll be able to deduct 50% of the meal, even if you eat alone. So Joseph, I hope that answers your question. And that said, we're going to wrap this up for today. And remember, if you want to submit your question, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts, drop your question in that box, hit the submit button, and we may just answer it live. Tom Costelli today, signing out. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.